Last week we looked at James's comforting words to the believers who had been defrauded by rich unbelievers who refused to pay their earnings for mowing their grain fields. He taught them how to be patient in the midst of suffering by showing them examples of others who patiently endured their own challenging situations and sufferings, and by pointing them to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the second advent, three times. In the next section, James addresses swearing. In this context, swearing does not refer to cussing or filthy talk. Um, It doesn't refer to double entendre. It doesn't refer to sexual innuendo or, or coarse joking or any of those sorts of things. Instead, it refers to taking oaths or the swearing of oaths. The taking of oaths is not necessarily an unbiblical practice. Throughout Scripture, we see that men, women, and even God took oaths. I have many examples for you. In Genesis chapter 21, verses 25 to 31, we see Abraham and Abimelech take an oath with each other, uh, swearing to one another that Abraham was the rightful owner of a particular well. In Genesis 24, verses 2 through 4, we see Abraham requiring his top servant to swear an oath to him that he would not find his son Isaac a wife from among the Canaanite women, but from among the women of his own country. Another example would be if a a man gave his neighbor livestock to care for while he was away on a business trip or something of that nature, and one of the animals got injured or died or maybe disappeared, that neighbor who was taking care of the animals was required to take an oath swearing that he was not the cause of the animal's demise or disappearance. In other words, he took an oath testifying that he had not stolen his neighbor's animal, which I guess was common in that day. We see this in Exodus 22, verses 10 through 11. Another example would be if a wife was suspected of committing adultery against her husband, but she denied the charge. She was required to take an oath swearing her innocence. Numbers chapter 5, verses 19 through 22. Also in Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, we see the Nazarite oath or Nazarite vow, which set people apart for God. The person who made this oath could not drink alcoholic beverages or anything derived from grapes. Uh, They couldn't even eat grapes. They could not shave their heads Uh, nor could they go near any dead bodies, any carcasses of any kind, and and even including their parents. If a parent had died, they couldn't go near the body of a dead parent. Notable Nazarites would be men like Samson. We see that in Judges 13, verses 4 and 5. Obviously, Samuel the prophet, 1 Samuel 1, 11. And, of course, John the Baptist, Luke chapter 1, verse 15. In Joshua chapter 2, verses 12 through 21, we see Rahab make an oath with the two spies who came to Jericho to check it out. She made them swear an oath not to harm her or her family when the Israelites would come to destroy the city. And the spies agreed to the oath, provided that she kept her mouth shut and said nothing about it, and that provided that she and her family stayed indoors when the attack commenced. In First and Second Samuel, 
we see David, King David here, swearing oaths to Jonathan, 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 12 to 17. We see him swear an oath to Saul, 1 Samuel 24, 21 and 22, to Shimei, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 19, verse 23. And we see him swear an oath to God in 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 35. In Exodus chapter 6, verse 8, it records God's oath that He would give the land of Israel to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants. Deuteronomy 28, verse 9 records God's oath to the Israelites to set them apart as a holy people unto Himself. In Luke chapter 1, verse 73, it refers to the oath God swore to Abraham. And Acts chapter 2, verse 30 notes the oath God swore to David. And then in Luke chapter 26, verses 63 to 64, we see Caiaphas, the high priest, make an oath to God, and we see Jesus accepting it and then testifying to who He is, the Son of God. These are all examples of of biblical oaths, and I would say even proper oaths. But that is not what James is referring to in this text we're going to be looking at. That's not the kind of oath-taking he's referring to. He is referring to improper, unbiblical oath-taking, the kind which had become extremely popular in his own day. R. Kent Hughes has a wonderful commentary at this point. I'll read it. It's a little lengthy, but it's worth our time. He says this, describing the... The, the mode or the temperature of James's day with this oath stuff. He says, the problem was, by New Testament times, traditional biblical teaching had come under amazing abuse. For example, some rabbis had begun to teach that an oath was not binding if it omitted God's name or did not imply it. Therefore, if you swore by your own life or someone else's life or the life of the king, as Abner did in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse, 40, verse 55, or by your health, Psalm 15, verse 4, or by some object but avoided mentioning or alluding to the name of God, you were not bound by that oath. And the Mishnah, which is a collection of Jewish tradition, traditions, devotes one whole section to an elaborate discussion of when oaths are binding and when they are not. In effect, the swearing of oaths had degenerated to a system that indicated when a man could and could not lie. And he says the the results were disgraceful. There was an undying epidemic of frivolous swearing. Oaths were continually mingled with everyday speech. By your life, by my beard, by the temple is what people would say. There was a trivialization of everyday language and a devaluation of integrity. He says, evasive swearing became a fine art. This is the kind of stuff that James was dealing with. And people do this in our day, don't they? When pressed for the truth, they foolishly declare or make little oaths saying things like, I swear on my mother's life, or I swear by my children, or sometimes they just go all the way with it and say, I I swear to God. And sometimes I've heard people say, if I'm lying, God can just go ahead and strike me down. Now, all such frivolous, 
Oat-taking is precisely what James attacks in the next text or next section here. But the real subject at hand here is not oath-taking per se, but honesty. Telling the truth. If people actually told the truth, there would be no need for oaths or swearing on Bibles or any of that stuff. An unknown author cleverly said, When people these days swear an oath, they are either lying or about to lie. That's pretty good. Now the fact is, we are all congenital liars. Researchers estimate that the average person lies a minimum of once to twice per day. What are some of the ways that uh, we lie on a daily basis? Well, here's some examples. We give people compliments that aren't completely genuine. Uh, We tell people we're doing well when in reality we're actually very exhausted and having an absolutely horrid week. That's a lie. We tell people we are busy to avoid having to talk to them for an extended period of time or to avoid having to do something with them. Oh, I'm busy on Tuesday. I can't do that. That is a lie. Uh, We do not answer the door and pretend to be gone when people show up unannounced. How many of us have done that? Uh, We embellish our stories to make them more attractive and the storyteller more impressive. We tell people, we're almost there, like we're driving down the road. I'm almost to your house when we're actually nowhere near that place. We say over and over, I'm almost there, I'll be there in a few minutes when, in some cases, we haven't even left. We tell people the reason we didn't respond to an email Uh, that had been, you know, they don't know this, but it had been sitting in our inbox. But we tell them, oh, I didn't get it. I didn't respond to it because I think it must have gone to my spam folder. Meanwhile, it's been there for two weeks. I've done this. We tell our spouses, boyfriends, girlfriends, fiancés, we tell them that the thing we bought wasn't that expensive when it was, in fact, much more expensive. We tell people we don't watch much TV, right? I'm not much of a TV person. Or we tell them we don't spend much time on social media when we, in fact, spend a great deal of time on television and social media, or both at the same time. We tell people we are almost finished with a project when we haven't actually started it. I've done this. We tell people it's great to see you when we bump into them at the store, but on the inside we're thinking, I can't stand it when I see this person. That's a lie. We say, I'll pray about it instead of saying, no, I'm not interested in doing that. That's one of the biggest ones us Christians lie about right there. Uh, We jokingly slam someone and say, just kidding, When, in fact, deep in our heart, we weren't kidding. We meant it. We brag about reading books and and articles, important articles and things that we've never actually read. And we do this to make ourselves appear more educated, more intelligent, more knowledgeable. Oh, of course I've read that book when we don't even know what the book is. And lastly, we offer to pray for someone later on, right? We cross paths with somebody and and they're telling us about their stuff and we say, you know what, I will pray for you. And then guess what happens later on? We never actually do it. That is a lie. 
Now, I could go on and on and on. And maybe I'll ask us this question at this point. Which of these lies did we recently tell? Or maybe your lie wasn't on the list. The truth is, we are all perpetual perjurers who tell a multitude of lies. From big lies to little white lies. And yes, little white lies are still lies. The next section should be understood not only as a prohibition against improper, unbiblical oath-taking, but as a, a call to radical truthfulness. Christians are to be radically truthful. That is the main point of the text and the title of this sermon. Please take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 5. We'll be focusing on verse 12 today. We're going to look at four R's, the reminder, the restriction, the requirement, and the repercussions. Let's read the text, pray for God's help, and then we'll get to work. Again, James chapter 5, verse 12. This is the next thing that James says. He says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. He says, But let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we ask you to help us now. Father, open our, our eyes and ears and hearts to the Word of God, to this passage, to verse 12. Help us to understand it and, and to live it out. Help us to become radically truthful and to forsake all lying and all silly, frivolous oath-taking. We pray this in Christ's beautiful name. Amen. Well, let's go ahead and begin with our first R. Number one, the reminder. We see this in verse 12a. Here's what James says. He says, but above all my brothers. Stop right there. The term, but above all, signifies a transition. What James is now beginning to do here is he's beginning to wrap up and close out his letter. There are only eight verses remaining. Can you believe that? It also signifies that he's about to give his audience a top command, a command that is above all the other commands he has given thus far. That's how serious oath-taking and truthfulness is. It's a very, very serious subject. And we see the, the reminder in the next phrase, my brothers. Remember, that's James's favorite title for fellow believers. What James is doing here by calling them my brothers is he's reminding his audience of who they are. Brother and sister believers, set apart unto God to be different people from everyone else in the world. God has placed a, a high premium on honesty, and He demands that His people be truthful, that they be honest in word and deed. Ananias and Sapphira are a testimony to this reality. They are a married couple who were struck down by God for, for making an oath and then lying about the money they had received from a real estate venture. 
We see that in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. God literally struck them down for, for lying and breaking their oath. Now, here's the deal. Our speech is to be honest, Ephesians 4.25, and our lives are to demonstrate integrity and, and credibility like that of Job, Job chapter 1, verse 1, right? He was a blameless and upright man who feared the Lord. He was known as a righteous man throughout the land. That's how we should be known. Now, for us, a simple yes or no should suffice because we have a track record of faithfully keeping our word. Oath-taking is therefore unnecessary for us believers. And we need to re regularly be reminded or remember who we are. We are fellow believers. We are the people of God. We are adopted sons and daughters. We are the lost sheep of Israel who have been found. We are the Lord's sheep. We are the Lord's brothers in a sense. And we need to make a conscious daily effort to live as such to pursue honesty and walk in godly integrity, that's what we're to do. Sometimes being reminded of who we are is all it takes to get us back on track. Was this not the case with Simon Peter? He denied the Lord three times, and he, and he plunged himself into a shame spiral. But afterwards... When he met Jesus on the beach before the ascension, Jesus reminded him of who he is. Who is he? He is an under-shepherd who feeds the sheep, right? John chapter 21, verses 15 to 19. And guess what happened when he was reminded of who he is? His entire life not only turned around, but it began to take off like a rocket ship. Acts chapter 2, 14, there we see his sermon on Pentecost, which is one of the greatest sermons in Scripture. And from that point forward, he just zooms and takes off for the Lord. His ministry, his life, it's just amazingly committed. He is a different man, a different person. And I believe partially because he was reminded of who he is. That's what Jesus graced him with, that reminder. We need to remember who we are. We are the people of God. We are to be honest, to have integrity, to walk in godliness, right? That's who we are. And that's the first R. Now let's move to the second R. And these move very quickly. They're pretty simple. It's a very topical sermon. The second R, the restriction. We see this in verse 12b. Verse 12b. James says, Do not swear either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath. James identifies the kind of frivolous oath-taking that was prevalent in his day. People, and including believers back then, they would swear by heaven or swear by earth in an effort to, to validate their claims, even when they secretly knew their claims were untrue or false. They thought they were safe as long as they didn't mention God's name, mention God at all, or even allude to God in any sort of way. If they just swore by the temple, they were okay. If they just swore by their own beard, they were okay. If they just swore by their mother's life like foolish people do today, they were okay. What they failed to understand is this. The transcendent creator is imminent, fully present in his creation. God the Son, 
The Lord Jesus Christ, He literally sustains every aspect of it 24-7. He upholds every atom. He upholds every molecule by the power of His Word. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. God cannot be separated from His creation. He is separated from it in the sense that He's holy, but He is not completely disconnected from His creation. If He were to be completely separated and disconnected from His creation in in every way possible, then His creation would cease to exist because His creation, this whole thing, the entire universe, the heavens and the universe, the earth, cannot sustain itself without His active power and sustaining it. When a person swears by anything in creation, they simultaneously swear by the Creator who made it all. Therefore, every oath that invokes any part of creation also invokes its Creator, God Himself. If a person swore by heaven... They unknowingly swore by the God who created heaven and who resides in heaven. If a person swore by earth, they unknowingly swore by the God who created the earth and all that is in it. This is precisely what Jesus taught concerning oaths in Matthew chapter 5, verses 34 to 36. Listen to what he said. Do not take an oath at all either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is His footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. And do not take an oath by your own head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Now, doesn't this text sound familiar? It sounds a lot like James chapter 5, verse 12. Well, that's because James was actually borrowing from Jesus' teaching on oaths. In fact, much of this letter came from Jesus' teachings, especially from the Sermon on the Mount. When a person swears by anything in creation, they swear by the Creator. And when they fail to uphold their end of the deal in that oath, when they fail to do it, man, or you know, when they show no intent on actually doing it, they're just doing it for show, they, they actually blaspheme God. All such frivolous, lie-hiding oaths are blasphemous. I like what Dr. MacArthur wrote. He said, Swearing by anything in God's dominion brings him into the transaction. Despite what the hypocrite deceivers may have thought or intended, God required their oaths as binding and judged them for not keeping them. So the restriction, according to James, and we'll add Jesus here because this is really his teaching, it's fairly simple. Make no oaths. Make no oaths that invoke anything in creation. Make no oaths that invoke the name of God. Do do not swear by heaven. Do not swear by earth. Do not swear by Jerusalem. Do not swear by your own head or by the life of another. Don't ever say, well, on my mother's life or on the lives of my kids. Don't ever say anything so foolish. Do not swear. What he's teaching us here is do not swear by anything or by anyone because doing so is tantamount to swearing by the one who made it all. 
God. And if we fail to fulfill these frivolous, foolish oaths, we not only blaspheme, but God will hold us accountable. Are we familiar with the tragic story of Jephthah in Judges chapter 11? He made an incredibly foolish oath before God. If God were to help him destroy the Ammonites, he would offer the first thing that came out of his front door as a burnt offering. Like when he got home from the battle, the first thing that comes out the door, I'll offer up to you as a burnt offering. That's the oath he made with God. Well, God gave the Ammonites into his hand. And he struck them down in 20 cities. It was a slaughter, a bloodbath. The Israelites were insanely victorious. And when Jephthah returned home, do you know what came out to greet him? It wasn't a lamb or a goat like he had hoped. It was his daughter and only child. And he was absolutely heartbroken. And in verse 39 it says... He did with her according to the vow he had made. How utterly tragic. Now let's move to the third R. Number three, the requirement. We see this in verse 12c. James continues by saying, But let your yes be yes and your no be no. This statement is also borrowed from Jesus. It comes from the exact same passage in Matthew 5. In verse 37, Jesus put it like this. He said, Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Christians are not to be oath takers. They are to be straight talking yes and no people. They are to be completely honest in their speech. They are to be radically truthful in a radically depraved and dishonest world. The world is actually thirsty for truth, but it doesn't know where to look for it or where to find it or even how to find it. R. Kent Hughes wrote something good here. He said, Congenital lying, philosophical relativism, and cultural traditions have spawned a society of barren Munchausens. This is so utterly true. And the last thing this this spiritually emaciated world needs is perjurious Christians lying in pulpits and lying in their workplaces, lying in private and public schools, lying on the uh, playgrounds, because some believers are young Christians, young children on playgrounds. That's the last thing this world needs is Christians lying in, in every sort of situation. The world does not need that. The world does not need Christians lying on social media platforms like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. It doesn't need more Christians. There's plenty of Christians out there who just lie all the time. In fact, we all do in many ways, some more than others. But that is not what the world needs. What this world needs is a generation of radical truth-tellers who do not shrink back from declaring the whole truth. Acts chapter 20, verse 27, one of my favorite verses. 
It needs radical truth-tellers who do that and who speak the whole truth in love, Ephesians 4.15, who give yes and no answers. Verse 12 of our text in Matthew chapter 5, verse 37, who do not pretend to know everything. There's nothing worse than a pedantic Christian. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2, and the world needs Christians who are honest, who will repent who will turn away, who will admit their mistakes when they are wrong. 1 John 1, verse 8. Full-orbed truthfulness like this is a wonderful evangelistic tool. Lost sinners have been, in a sense, drawn to Christ because they saw these qualities in a church or in an individual. Radical truthfulness will be, for some, as tantalizing as a cool drink in the desert. What is required of us according to James and Jesus here? When we say yes, we are to mean it. And when we say no, we are to mean it. And whatever we say yes to, we must carry it out. And whatever we say no to, we must hold the line. We cannot be wishy-washy Christians Wishy-washy Christians are a dime a dozen, and they are borderline useless. The world is watching. We need to model godly integrity, and one way to do that is to let our yes be yes and our no be no. Now let's go ahead and move to the fourth and final R. Number four, the repercussions. We see this in verse 12d. James put it like this, so that you may not fall under condemnation. James tells his audience very plainly that frivolous oath-taking will bring condemnation. The Greek word for condemnation is is interesting. It is krisis, uh, which means judgment. This Greek noun appears in the Gospels more than 25 times with the idea of passing sentence. Paul used it twice to speak of God's judgment of sinners. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 24. Peter used it to refer to the condemnation of the unrighteous on the day of judgment. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. And so did Jude chapter 1, verse 15, as well as the Apostle John. He used it to speak of this judgment in 1 John chapter 4, verse 17. Now we can see from these texts that Croesus clearly refers to the, the judgment of sinful unbelievers. In fact, MacArthur stated that this word um, and kind or form of judgment is never associated with believers in Scripture. You'll never find Croesus in reference to believers. So, with that being said, why did James use it while addressing believers and oaths and honesty. Why would he use the word crisis here? He absolutely used it. Well, he appears in some sense, right, to be threatening actual believers with fiery judgment if they take frivolous frivolous oaths, etc. Now, the question is, is that his intention? Is that what he intends to do here? Absolutely not. He understands that Believers will never experience crisis. So this cannot be his point. It cannot be his intention. 
What he's actually doing here is he's issuing a, a strong warning against those who think it's okay to take frivolous oaths, you know, dishonest oaths while being a Christian. That kind of disposition and behavior is not born-again behavior, but unregenerate and sinful. It is the attitude and conduct of unregenerate unbelievers. So, what will the repercussions be for believers who continue in this wickedness, who just lie all the time and take frivolous oaths? What will their punishment or repercussion be? Will it be Croesus? No, that is reserved for the dead on the day of judgment. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. Believers will not experience Croesus, and praise God we won't. But they will, however, experience divine chastisement. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 10 and 11, which can come in many shapes and sizes. In the case of Ananias and Sapphira, it came in the shape and form of instant death and removal from the earth. Now, there were special circumstances surrounding that particular incident. The church was fairly new, and God desired to make or set an example for all to see. But that doesn't mean that, that God no longer uses extreme measures to purify the church and to strike holy fear in people. He can most certainly do that today, just as he did in the first century or throughout the Old Testament. He can do it. And he still does. We just don't hear about it. Taking an oath that invokes creation or God himself and not following through with it is blasphemy. And God takes blasphemy very serious. In fact, um, it is on his top 10 list, right? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. That's one of the Ten Commandments. As his people, we should take blasphemy very seriously as well. We should immediately cease from any and all blasphemous behavior, especially frivolous oath-taking. Let me go ahead and close it up here. As usual, James has minced no words. He just shoots as straight as you can shoot. He tells it like it is. I appreciate that about him, even though it's frightening. He just, he minces no words and he just tells the people he's written to exactly what they need to hear. He addresses their sinfulness head on. He's done that again here in this text. He's minced no words when he said, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Or for us believers, under divine chastisement. May the Lord help us to be radically truthful. That is what the church needs. The church needs radically truthful men and women believers 
And this is also what the world needs. I'll end with a great quote from Matthew Henry. This is wonderful. He said this, The frequent requiring and using of oaths is a poor reflection on Christians who should be of such acknowledged fidelity as that their sober words should be as sacred as their solemn oaths. Amen.